Roger that, Houston. All systems five by five. But what if there is no tomorrow? There wasn't one today. Welcome to the Nerdfest podcast. Today we've got Dan Watkins, Andy Chandler, Peter Johnson, John Farthing, and I'm Hazel Thurston. And I think that's the first time in three years we've done the order without <laughs> practicing the order beforehand. <laughs> no, I'm Hazel Burton. <laughs> <laughs> this episode is a recommendations special. We've all got some stuff that we would love to talk to you about that we've been enjoying recently. And we will be hearing from Ian Mayer, back stuck in the void, unfortunately, but he has been reading some comics that he would love to talk to you about. So, let's get started. How is everybody? I finished Rise of the Tomb Raider. Oh, yes. About 10 years after it was finally released. (laughs) Well done. So now I have ordered Shadow of the Tomb Raider, which I believe is the next one. It is. Does anyone buy stuff from the PlayStation Store online? I got a PlayStation Plus membership to be able to play Red Dead 2 online, and they give you two free games a month. So I normally download one of those and have a go. Yeah, I'm playing Middle Earth Shadow of War at the moment, which was a nice freebie. I do download Assassin's Creed games for Amy to play. Mm. They're normally much cheaper on the PlayStation Store than they are to buy a physical copy of. That is something I was going to ask. Shadow of the Tomb Raider, 50 quid on the PlayStation Store, 10 quid on disc on Amazon. But Assassin's Creed Origins, 12 quid on the PlayStation Store, 50 quid to buy a disc. I think they have very good sales on the PlayStation Store, but if you just want to buy a catalogue game, Mm. they don't seem to reduce in the way that physical shops do. I suspect the reason they don't make the back catalogue stuff cheaper is they want to maintain a market for fresh releases and not swamp them with old stuff. Mm-hmm. Speaking of old stuff, there have been some PlayStation 2 games I've really had a hankering to play again that I wish they would just stick on the PlayStation Store for 50p or whatever. The Simpsons Road Rage, which is nearly 20 years old now, but was a wonderful game to play. I just got an urge to start playing that again and drive up the escalator to nowhere. Don't know whether that's metaphorical or not, but... Is um, Road Rage the Crazy Taxi ripoff? It is. Yeah, because there was one that was a bit Grand Theft auto That was Hit and Run, I think. That's the one I'm thinking of, yeah. Yeah, I had that. I like that. Was it the Strictly Come Dancing performance that inspired you to get that out again, Dan? <sighs> it was the Strictly Come Dancing performance that inspired me to have nightmares for weeks. Yes. That was bizarre, wasn't it? A very scary. I saw a photo of that and it reminded me of, um, there's a Simpsons live action porno. I knew you were going to go there. Oh, Where, like, there's, like, Marge and Homer going at it, and then Ned Flanders walks in and joins in, and it's all the porn stars. <laughs> but they've all, they've, they've generally, they've all painted themselves yellow, like, with body paint, <laughs> and got the wigs on, so they look like the Simpsons characters. It's really, it's, it's disturbing. Doesn't sound disturbing. But you watch the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, thing. I was going to say, like, how did you make it past Ned Flanders joining in? But no, you watch the whole thing. Okay. <laughs> no, I, I've seen I've seen the trailer rather than the actual entire thing. But um, sure, fiddly diddly with Ned Flanders, it should have been called. <laughs> as long as Homer says at one point, "Stupid, sexy Flanders," then it will have been worth doing. Is live action naked Ned Flanders more or less arousing than The Crown's sexy Thatcher? <laughs> Oh, yeah. Having watched the first episode, she 
is frighteningly good as Margaret mm. Thatcher from an acting point of view. I thought you were going to say sexy. <laughs> I've got no interest in The Crown whatsoever because I'm not a big historical drama fan. But this season, as it gets into like Princess Di and I presume they're going to do the IRA Mountbatten bombing this season. The IRA feature heavily in the first episode. So as it's getting into the bits now that I remember as a kid, I'm kind of a little bit more interested. It's definitely worth watching. Very good. And Gillian Anderson, if she doesn't scoop up all the awards, and this is just based on one episode, I would be very surprised. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I have to say, I, was, I didn't enjoy the third season very much. I enjoyed the first two, um, but I sort of gave up on the third season around the time when um, Prince Philip met the three astronauts from mm-hmm. Apollo 11. Uh, and the whole plot point was that he found them quite boring. That was that was it. Um, yeah. So I just it was just dreadfully slow. So I'm hoping because, like John says, born in the eighties, and that's, you know I'm, I don't remember these things happening, but I certainly remember um, you know reading about the them. aftermath. The aftermath. Um, so yeah, hopefully this will um, encourage me to come back to it. There's definitely a sense, again, just from the first episode, that Charles and the next generation are going to take a much more central role. The Queen's almost in the background in the first episode. So it could be that if Charles and Diana and Camilla and Anne and who knows, maybe even the Duke of York come into it as the series go up. That would be grand. It'll take a different turn. (laughs) It was so hard for the actor to have to film his entire scenes under those studio lights without being able to sweat. I've heard the royal family go quite villainous in this one. That it, it's quite pro Diana, and it doesn't hide back like the way that they essentially destroyed her. Is it fair to say it's quite hagiographic so far? It's been not that controversial. They don't always come off as the good guys. Certainly, in the Abba Fan episode in episode three, the Queen does not come out of that looking good at all. Mm. But at the same time, it's quite sympathetic to this weird unique privileged position that they've got within the country they're at the top they've got all of these great things but there's so many things they also can't do Mm -hmm. and i think again once it gets into that charles and diana thing and you've got somebody very much from the outside coming in that's going to get much much clearer yeah but one thing i did realize from watching the first episode of season four is much like you in the west wing hazel I do have a theme song that I sing along to The Crown as the opening <laughs> music plays. We have to hear it. They're not as Pulitzer-worthy as your West Wing ones. <laughs> it is just saying the word crown over and over again to the different notes of the theme song. And how does that sound? How does it sound? Crown, 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 crown. It's not the most melodic of theme songs, I have to say. <laughs> a bit crowny. Mm. Well, you must do what we do as well, which is an interpretive dance. Actually, we've extended it from not only the West Wing, we now have a different style of dance to every single TV show that we watch. So the show that I'm going to be talking about shortly, Castle, we do sort of a drum thing. Do, 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 do. That was quite short. Um, uh, Buffy, and this is not my idea, this was your Oh, Buffy, for the love idea. of God. Guitar, surely. <laughs> no, we punch. We burn about 500 calories every episode. It's not too late to cancel the wedding, mate. <laughs> it was his idea. You can idea. still escape, Andy. It's not too late. And it's really, Andy, blink twice if you need help. It was his idea, and it's really, really vigorous punching. It's like... Doo, 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 doo. And honestly, it's... Are you uh, sure you weren't watching EastEnders? <laughs> <laughs> 
Oddly enough, that's exactly the uh, same noise and actions I made when watching the Simpsons porn parody. That was a... (laughs) (laughs) Banter section over. (laughs) Oh, he's back in the void, bless him. But he has got... Oh, no. I know. I don't know how he gets himself into these things, but he's back and he's handcuffed. But he has got three (laughs) comics that he has been enjoying. uh, So we are going to let him do that, bless him. Do we know who handcuffed him? I don't know, but I think he might like it being tied to a chair. (laughs) (laughs) He's tied to a chair as well now. (laughs) Lockdown boy. He's been running out of lockdown toys. Watching Netflix and baking ham. Playing the PS4 Spider-Man. Miles Morales, Captain's Log, it's Stardate, whatever the hell it is in Lockdown 2.0, and I'm back in the void. In these strangely timeless times, I've been reading a bunch of comic books, and I've noticed a British theme in what I've been enjoying. First up, Warhammer 40,000 Marnius Kogar. Warhammer 40,000, or 40k, is the hugely popular miniature war game produced by Games Workshop. It's kind of a high fantasy setting with orcs and elves and dwarves, but transposed into a massive sci-fi universe, which as it's grown, it's been influenced by tons of things, mecha anime, the aliens films, lots of pop culture. It's impossible to summarise it quickly, so I won't bother, but you can find this universe in board games, novels, computer games, and over a decade's worth of comic books. But Manius Colgat is the first of these ever produced by Marvel, and so far it's great. This miniseries explores the origin of Manius Calgar who is the chapter master or highest commander of the Ultramarines, also called Space Marines, which are the super-powered soldiers of the Imperium of Man, and the most recognisable characters in 40k. The story deals with Marnius fighting chaos-worshipping heretics on his homeworld, while flashing back to his childhood now he became a Space Marine. Now this comic book is drawn by Jason Burroughs, who's an American artist with quite a detailed line art style. This guy manages to capture the scale, weirdness and violence of this world remarkably well. It's written by Kieran Gillen, who is like the perfect writer for this book. He's a British guy who's grown up breathing in the acrylic paint from his Citadel miniatures. And what he's managed to do here is find a dramatic entry point for a vast and extremely detailed universe. But more importantly, he's managed to capture the gothically grim, slightly absurd tone of the 40k world, which is no mean feat. And brings me to my next recommendation. This comic's called We Only Find Them When They're Dead. Now this is a mini-series created by Al Ewing and Simone DiMeo, and it's the story of an autopsy ship, which is a spaceship whose job is to dissect dead gods found floating around the universe, harvesting them of meat and ichor and processing blood sugars into precious carbohydrates. So imagine like Galactus from uh, Marvel Comics or the Celestials in the MCU. These giants just found dead hovering there. It's mysterious, it's a little grim, and it has a lot of well-thought-out world-building behind it. This book's drawn by uh, Simone DiMeo, who's a, a guy from Turin, whose style is a world away from Jason Burroughs. This is kind of anime-inspired, slickly-designed space opera with this like psychedelic neon palette. Written by Al Ewing, another British writer who again has this slightly twisted, ironic sensibility. This is a guy who looked at Galactus in the comic and was like, how many meals is in that? It's a really twisted, slightly humorous viewpoint, which is squarely in the tradition of British comics. Which brings me to my final recommendation, and I'm going old school. Nemesis the Warlock is one of the classic characters from UK Comics Institution 2000 AD, 
which is a weekly anthology comic best known for Judge Dredd, but which contains a multitude of fantasy, sci-fi and horror stories in that very particular vein of British pulp. It's been published since 1977 and it's still published today. Now, reading 2000 AD, you can feel like hints of Douglas Adams or John Wyndham. You can see the kind of sensibilities that will go on to inform things like Red Dwarf. So Nemesis is an epic tale written by Pat Mills, who is like the nihilistic punk grandfather of British comic books. And it's about a devil-like alien sorcerer engaged in a guerrilla war against the quasi-fascistic human empire. Bizarrely, the Nemesis The Wallet universe was inspired by the Jamson going underground, and the whole thing is a condensed dose of pulpy British weirdness. You'll see Nemesis pursuing his son and his son's pet dinosaur through the sewer system of time. You'll see a society modelled around Victorian London occupying a brick moon. It's a huge tale and there are many, many volumes, but don't worry about that. If you fancy this at all, just dive in. I'd heartily recommend Nemesis Book 3, drawn by Kevin O'Neill, who designed the character, or Book 5, drawn by Brian Talbot. Both these artists have a different kind of hyper-detailed, obsessive comic book style, both of which serve the material well. All these comic books I've mentioned can be found digitally, or, you know, if your comic book shop opens, maybe you can get them from there too. I wish I was in the void. Why? Sounds cosy, you get comics. <laughs> there is an episode of The Clone Wars called A Sunny Day in the Void, and R2-D2 ends up in the void. Oh, poor R2. Having to listen to Ian talk about comics. <laughs> so cruel. <laughs> Uh, who wants to go first with their recommendation? Should I go now? I will I will tee you up. Tee me up. Hey. <laughs> so let's do some recommendations. Dan, what have you been enjoying recently? Because on TV this month we've mostly been re-watching The West Wing, Woo-hoo. I have got a new book to recommend for your Nerdfest bookshelf. And it's the new one by Max Brooks called Devolution. Max Brooks is probably most famous for writing World War Z which later became a film with Brad Pitt. If you've only seen the film, I do really recommend going to the book and giving it a read. It's structured like an oral history of the zombie war, and it goes from the very first case through to the responses of lots of different countries, lots of individual stories of people and how they survived, and then the aftermath as well. And it is a fantastic book. It could have been a fantastic film. I still enjoyed the film, but it ain't as good as the book. What Max Brooks has done with Devolution is taken that same kind of realistic format and instead of continuing with zombies, he's applied it to Bigfoot. And Bigfoot, Sasquatch, isn't something that I've always been frightened of, but after reading this book, I kind of am. It's structured around the journal of Kate, who lived in a small community called Greenloop, which was massacred. And nobody knew what happened, but her journal was uncovered. And through excerpts in the journal, along with interviews with primatologists and other experts, the author has put together what appears to be a family of Bigfoots, or Bigfeet, however you want to (laughs) pluralise it, who have come upon this community and destroyed it. Actually, I think it's like sheep. It's the plural is the singular. Ah, well, there you go. A family of Bigfoot. 
A family of Bigfoot have come along and found this community after a volcanic event in the very northwest of the US and have caused destruction. It's incredibly compelling. I read the majority of the book in a single afternoon. It's genuinely scary in a few moments. There are great characters. And if you've ever been fascinated with the idea of Bigfoot and other cryptozoology creatures like the Loch Ness Monster and things like that, I really, really recommend getting a copy of Devolution. You live in Scotland, Dan, yeah? Yes. Have you ever seen a Loch Ness Monster? Yeah, there's one outside the window at the moment. They're making sure that we all stay inside. I see. Uh, is, th- is this like, uh, say, whenever you see someone in a hotel in Paris, you can guarantee out the window there'll be a view of the Eiffel Tower? Which, yep, if yeah, you ever stayed in a hotel in Paris, this never, ever happened. <laughs> but obviously, it's like that in Scotland, isn't it? Yeah. You have to have Bigfoot or someone in a kilt. Yep. <laughs> Maybe or everywhere. some shortbread. <laughs> <laughs> So, so when you were reading about the uh, the big feet or the Bigfoot, were you imagining Harry from Harry and the Hendersons as the Bigfoot? I wasn't, strangely. I think that's the primary thing that most people would think of. It did kind of make me want to watch Harry and the Hendersons after reading it. <laughs> but this is a very different kind of thing. They are described displaying behaviours like gorillas or bonobos do. Mm-hmm. So it's quite easy to picture in your head a tall, stocky, muscular gorilla or orangutan who is fully upright and walking on two legs. You were avoiding saying the word erect, weren't you? Well, (laughs) yes. But no, uh, Harry does not encroach on here. I don't think Harry would ever have done anything as horrific as what some of the creatures in this book do. Would it make a good film? Because This is the interesting thing. In the author acknowledgements, Max Brooks says that he wrote the story as a film script, sold the script, but when nothing came of the film, he bought the rights back and turned it into a book. I think it would be great as a survival horror, but if it stays only as a book, that's fine. I think it was a film. They just dramatically um, went away from the source material and they ended up calling it Happy Feet. Oh. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I wondered why there were so many dance numbers in Chapter 5. <laughs> <laughs> so do you believe there is any truth in any of the... Because there's there are rumours of a Bigfoot-type creature. Um, you know, there's the Yeti equivalent mm-hmm. in the Himalayas. There's various other ones around the world. So yeah. do you think there's any reason or is it just people see a gorilla and get spooked? I would love for it to be true. I'm fascinated by these kinds of things. I think it's the Zapruder film is the most famous one in the 60s. That's JFK. No, the Zapruder film is the footage of Kennedy being assassinated. Unless JFK was assassinated by a big feet. It's It's possible. It's possible. Mm -hmm. I'm surprised Oliver Stone missed that one. (laughs) I, I would love for it to be true. I don't know whether it is or not, but this book makes it as plausible as it's ever felt. This fictional book. Yeah. It's not claiming to be a true story. You have to suspend your disbelief. Mm-hmm. You would expect with everyone now having really high quality video cameras on their person at all times that we'd have a deluge of UFO sightings, <laughs> of Loch Ness monster spottings, Bigfoot mm-hmm. spottings, unless it was all crap. <laughs> Which yeah. I would love it not to be crap. Mm-hmm. but No, it is. It's all crap. But wouldn't it be cool if it wasn't? Do you know the theory as to why we don't see UFOs anymore? Is it cloaking devices? Uh, did they stop making them? <laughs> or did they rename them for Europe? <laughs> Since the X-Files has been cancelled. 
Pretty much. No, it's um, basically most of what you see as UFOs on photographs are light reflections through the mirrors on old school analog cameras. Uh, uh-huh. And because digital cameras work in a different way, they don't get that disturbance. Most of what you see is like the lights in the sky are actually problems with the camera lens. That would be only be true if people took the photos without actually seeing the thing at the time. Because mm-hmm. if you see it in the sky when you're not using your camera and then you point your camera to, to take a photo. Yeah, it also the thing is most of it is bollocks and people go and look at this photo <laughs> of a UFO when they get the pictures back from snappy snaps. <laughs> yep. Well, thank you as well for the recommendation on the book World War Z as well because I, yes. I did really, really enjoy the film but that book is right up my alley um, from the yeah. sounds of it. So, so mm. why is that dirty? <laughs> Oh yeah, I see. <laughs> so I'm gonna I'm gonna check that out. Can you add it to the birthday list, Andy? Thank you. Sure, definitely can. I, there's, there's definitely a list, and I didn't forget. <laughs> I will look forward to hearing your review of it once you've read it. It is one of my fave books. So Daniel, how many students taking pictures of other students in cheap monkey costumes out of ten <gasps> would you give it? I would give it nine actual real Sasquatches out of ten. You sceptic. <laughs> Can I go next? Because mine's also about something that doesn't exist. I feel like I have to defend these probably not real creatures. <laughs> Leave the Bigfoots alone. Somewhere in a forest is a Sasquatch with an iPhone listening to this podcast going like, oh. <laughs> <laughs> Little tear rolling down its furry cheek. <laughs> Ghosts. They also don't exist. But I would very much like to recommend a uh, sitcom called Ghosts. Excellent. Mm. Uh, it's got... Two seasons so far, each consisting of six episodes, all of which are available to view on BBC iPlayer. The premise is that a young couple, Alison and Mike, unexpectedly inherit a huge crumbling country house from a distant relative. Uh, They decide to move in, unaware that the mansion is haunted by a collection of ghosts who died on the grounds throughout the ages. After a near-death experience, Alison gains the ability to see and hear the ghosts and must find ways to coexist with them. Uh, The ghosts include a caveman, a stuck-up Edwardian lady, a scout leader with an arrow through his neck, a witch trial victim who was burned at the stake, uh, a Tory MP who died in a sex scandal, is now forever trouserless, and many more. Uh, They're all stuck in the grounds of the house together, and they form the kind of dysfunctional family unit. Uh, Initially, they aren't happy to share their home with Alison and Mike, but gradually they learn to accept and get along with them. This is written by and features a lot of the cast from Horrible Histories. Uh, Although it's aimed at a grown-up audience, it's still child-friendly, though. It generally steers clear of vulgarity. The style of humour is quite safe and inoffensive, which isn't a bad thing in any way. It's very funny, it's character-driven, and it's got a very high density of jokes. So it's very much a crowd-pleaser. This just makes the show feel very warm and comfortable, and I've found it a very pleasant distraction from the woes of the world. It's a big warm hug of a show, uh, but like many great comedies, there's also an element of tragedy at the core. Uh, the ghosts are doomed to inhabit Button House forever, more or less unable to interact with the world other than to watch it change, forget them, and pass them by. They're often quite excited when something happens to liven up their sad existence, doing their best to get involved and feel real again, and in times like these, they come across as very sympathetic characters. Uh, a few episodes explore some of their backstories, and there are some surprisingly tender, heartfelt moments. Uh, so Ghost is a show which presents a cast of enjoyable characters, it gets you to like them, and makes you laugh without undermining them at all. It's just nice and fun and exactly the kind of thing that people need these days. I absolutely agree. I love Ghosts. Mm. Um, I've loved this 
back gang of performers since Horrible Histories. They've since gone on to do the film Bill and Yonderland. And Ghost seems to have been the thing that's really catapulted them into everyone's hearts because it's something that all generations seem to love. It's great to have a comedy that appeals to all of these different audiences. And they're all fantastic. They're all really funny in very different ways. Everybody's got a different favourite ghost. And I can't wait for Series 3 and the Christmas special that's going to be on next month. Oh, I didn't know there was a Christmas special. Yes. I was aware that they'd uh, greenlit Season 3, but I'm very glad that we can have some uh, spectral entertainment over Christmas. Indeed. Who's your favourite of the ghosts, Andy? Probably Pat, uh, the scout leader with the arrow (laughs) through the neck. Pat Butcher is his name, apparently. Yes. Um, he's a lot of fun and he has a magnificent moustache. Good for him. Yeah. I've only seen a couple of them. It feels like a proper old school Saturday evening sitcom of the sort you kind of get in the 80s and 90s. And I, I don't mean that in like in a derogatory way at all, but it's, it seems to be that sort of family, everyone around the telly kind of thing that, that's been lost recently. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. And it's really nice that because those kinds of comedies don't really get made anymore, it feels quite different and really refreshing for being almost the only one of its kind around at the moment. Quite right. It does occasionally feel a bit like you're watching a kid's TV show, which, you know, again, isn't necessarily a bad thing because I think we all probably watch the occasional uh, thing like that. Horrible histories. Well, exactly. I've been watching Sister, Sister again. It's amazing. <laughs> There's no jokes in Sister. I was watching Sister, Sister again by mistake. And people say things that aren't funny. And then the audience laughs for no reason. And this goes on. But you you must be used to that, John. Hey. <laughs> no, 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 no. I said the audience laugh, Peter. You used to be saying something, an awkward silence, and then I say something else. So I, I was just wondering why Sister Sister gets such a different reaction when there's an equal level of non-humour involved. Drugs. The audience are entirely on drugs. <laughs> I suspect that, that the laughter may have been added in post-production. You can do that. <laughs> Just like our last podcast episode. <laughs> if anyone is in the market for a laughter machine, uh, Peter's built one, genuinely. This is true, yes. <laughs> so, b- because after a recording accident last episode, I had to replace a load of stuff that I said, including all the laughs. And because it's very hard to do laughs realistically, I had to actually make a keyboard instrument with all my laughs on it taken out of the previous episode. <laughs> so yeah, that was weird, playing a keyboard to get the laughs. Yeah, it would mean that you can now edit us to say anything that you want, but it's luckily just you that's done that. And ha ha ha, you are very sexy and funny, Peter Johnson. <laughs> <laughs> when I do a thing like that? So ghosts. <laughs> that's still my favourite South Park episode. After Isaac Hayes left when they did the Scientology episode and they just edited all the clips of Isaac Hayes so they had to say horrible, horrible things. So, ghosts. <laughs> yeah, ghosts. Ghosts, uh, yeah. <laughs> What's been nice about the second series of Ghosts is that after each episode's aired on BBC One, the directors put up a series of tweets about all the special effects and how they made the episode. And it's been really nice to see how, even for something with supernatural elements, as much of it is practical and done in the same location on the house as they possibly can it's really fun to look through it and see how they did it all. It must be a really fun show to work on, as well as watch. The the actress who plays Alison. Charlotte Ritchie. She helps to ground it. Mm. The rest of them feel very much like they're in a kid's show. And she plays it a bit more straight. And that yeah. helps to make it appeal to adults a bit more, I think. Yeah, she's really good. 
I do wonder if occasionally they're inhibited by lack of interaction with physical things, that that limits the type of plot they can do. There were several episodes with someone really important coming to view the house at 3pm and I've got to get this thing tidied, and then all the ghosts sort of flap about but unable to do anything or help. So they obviously have to be quite creative to find plot lines that the ghosts can actually be helpful and useful in. Do they keep with the ghosts not being allowed to touch things in? One of them can do it with a load of sort of mental effort, but it takes a lot out of him to do it. Mm-hmm. But that at least allows them to do one or two things. There should be a Red Dwarf supercut of all the time Rimmer touches things and moves things and sits on things, despite being a hologram <laughs> yeah. in the first few seasons. So it's something that seems very, very hard to do properly. If they ever found themselves creatively stifled and couldn't think of anything else to do, because they're ghosts and it's supernatural, just change mm. the rules in the next series yeah. and one yeah. of them develops the ability to move stuff and you solve the problem. But yeah. the thing I wonder about is if they're ghosts with unfinished business and destined to haunt, what if one of them finds full closure and has to move on mm. and we lose a character? But I don't really want any of the characters to go because they're all really good. The guy with the trousers around his ankles, of course, is also the, the writer of Dan's favourite film that isn't a Star Wars movie. Is he not? Paddington 2. <laughs> yes, Simon Farnaby co-wrote Paddington 2. He also co-stars in both the films as the uh, security guard. And he's also the only one of the Horrible Histories cast to have been in a Star War, because he turns up for about half a second in Rogue One. Ah. But yeah, they've all had various comedy careers. Jim Howick was a regular on Peep Show. Matt Bainton was in a show with James Corden for a couple of years. Half of the cast of Ghosts are in Stathlet's Flats and vice versa. So there's almost like a generation of comedians all working on each other's projects at the moment, which is really nice. That seems to happen kind of once every generation. Mm-hmm. So like Simon Pegg and Steve Coogan and Chris Morris and Amanda Inucci would all kind of pop up in each other's stuff. Traditionally, it was because they were the same class at Oxford or Cambridge, isn't Pretty it? Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so Andy, how many trouserless Tories out of 10 would you give Ghosts? <laughs> a full eight trouserless Tories out of 10. It's very fun. I recommend it to anyone who wants just a, a nice distraction from... Brexit and coronavirus and elections and all that stuff. Just just settle down front of the TV and just melt into it. It's lovely. Shall I go next? I have been turning to some old favourites to get me through and I can tell you it is working like a charm. So aside from uh, The West Wing, which I watch every day and so should you, I would like to recommend the TV show Castle or Castle if you're posh. Um <laughs> So, yeah, hopefully uh, this will raise a bit of nostalgia to people who have watched it. And for those who haven't, I urge you to get on it as soon as possible. Um, So Castle stars Nathan Fillion and Stana Katik, and it is a New York set police drama with a very lighthearted comedic tone. Castle is Nathan Fillion's character, Richard Castle, and he is a very successful, very... I would say, arrogant uh, mystery author. Um, And he has a recurring series of books around a character called Derek Storm who hunts down serial killers. Um, And actually, Castle's name is a tribute to uh, Stephen King, whose surname is also a chess piece. Um, And in the first episode, um, somebody has recreated some of the murders that Castle describes in his books um, down to the finest possible details. So, the New York Police Department brings Castle in for a consultation and the person who does that consulting is Stan Katik's character, uh, Detective Kate Beckett. 
She's a homicide detective who is incredibly capable. She's whip smart and she doesn't take any shit. So the two of them kind of butt heads a little bit at the start. um, And you can really tell from the off that there is some electric chemistry there. So Castle ends up being quite the dab hand at helping to solve the murder. And based on the research that he does for each of his uh, novels, he ends up becoming a permanent consultant for the New York police. So he ends up partnering with Beckett and he works with the team of homicide detectives that she works with, mainly um, characters called Ryan and Esposito, who are wonderful side characters. We also get to know Castle's home life and spend time with his daughter Alexis and his rather eccentric mum called Martha, um, who also live with him. So it's a it's a reluctant partnership at first on Beckett's behalf, but she soon warms up to him and she appreciates the off the wall and the unique insight that he brings to each case they get. Um, and on the other side, Castle has a new muse. So he bases a new series of books based on a police detective called Nikki Heat, which is inspired by Beckett. So each episode takes a a bit of like a a Monster of the Week type format in that there's a new murder to solve with brand new characters every episode. There's something like a little bit different to each and every case. So they go from hunting people who are pretending to be vampires. They go to high society, Irish mobsters, behind the scenes of a TV show. Um, I think there's even an 1800 style duel in Central Park. There is a couple of recurring plots, but most of the time that they're one off. And while you don't really need any sort of forensic training to to work out who did it most episodes, it's easy to follow, but it's still so much, so much fun to watch. Um, And because there's a new plot every single week, it also means that there's a ton of guest stars, which you will delight in seeing so like practically every episode it's like oh it's riley from buffy or oh it's jane from firefly or oh, it's president wayne palmer or sherry from 24 <laughs> it's great uh the chemistry between the two leads is absolutely sizzling and the early seasons are possibly the best i don't think the quality drops yeah. too much but definitely the early scenes are the best which is normal with with most things how many seasons did it run for Eight altogether. There, there was going to be a ninth, but for reasons that are still unclear, there was a bit of a backlash because two of the lead characters were not going to be returning. So in the kind of the opposite to Nathan Fillion's uh, previous show, uh, Firefly, um, fans actually campaigned for it to be cancelled. <laughs> oh. uh, yeah. Because there was a big falling out between Stan Akatic and Nathan Fillion, wasn't there? Yes. I never really heard the details of why or what it was about. They haven't shared them. It, it extended to the plot a bit as well in that they had to keep the characters apart a bit and they gave them reasons for that but yeah they couldn't stand each other by the end which is a bit sad because you know especially because we're watching the early seasons again it's like my gosh they absolutely just Mm. bounce off each other in the scenes and it's it's really really wonderful so it's that's kind of that that's a bit hard to to understand but um there is there is a ton of episodes to enjoy before it gets to that and also there is a lot of nods to other material particularly Firefly, which you will, you will enjoy, Dan. But perhaps my favourite subtle reference is the fact that Castle's real name is Richard Rogers. Does the name Richard Rogers mean anything to you, Dan? I believe it is the name of the theatre at which Hamilton is performed on Broadway. Uh-huh. Ah. 
Well, that's Rogers as in Rogers and Hammerstein, isn't it? I don't know, actually, but Castle's real name, as in his full real name, is Richard Alexander Rogers. And his oh. mum, Martha, was a Broadway star. But this all happened before Hamilton. This all came Whoa. out before do, 2015. Do, do. <gasps> There's another mystery. Cosmic. A mystery for Castle to solve. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Was Bigfoot involved? Yeah. So I don't know if Lin-Manuel Miranda watched Castle, but I would love to believe that that connection is true and that's where he got <laughs> his inspiration from. I think it's a wonderful show. It's the kind of show that we like, oh, we'll put it on and then five episodes later, it, we, it's like the end of the evening. Um, it's just a really, really wonderful show. So I would recommend it. I love Nathan Fillion in Firefly. I'm one of the people who loves and watches The Rookie, but I never saw Castle at the time and I feel like I've missed out. So I'm going to have to get on this. It's well worth a watch. Mm -hmm. Daniel. Hello. As a massive fan of Nathan Fillion. Yes. But also as an historian who works in a castle, how disappointed were you when you found out what the show was actually about? (laughs) Um, I can't say I wasn't disappointed that it was not set in or starred an actual castle. But I believe that Castle does feature somebody with an accent from Newcastle, Mm. which makes everything forgivable. Famously bad. The world's greatest slash worst Geordie accent. Mm -hmm. Yeah. There's YouTube clips of it if you haven't seen it. Uh, It won't spoil anything for the rest of the series. But yeah, it's something between Scottish and Australian and Martian. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) But yeah, it has my recommendation to... It's a great show. Especially for Dan. I'm, I'm absolutely certain that you'll love it. And we've really, really enjoyed re-watching it so far. And I think every single episode, more or less, before we start, we go, oh, this one's really good. Yes. <laughs> They're all really, really good. I think it is wonderful and I would urge you to get on it. It has been on streaming services before, so hopefully it'll come back to those soon. But there are other ways of seeing it, I'm sure. Excellent. We wouldn't possibly know what you're talking about, Hazel. And so how many pl- implausible relationships, prof- so how many implausible professional relationships would it be? Oh, no, I have to say that too now, don't I? <laughs> <laughs> I would say nine implausible professional relationships <laughs> out of ten. So, John, what have you been watching? Well, you may be surprised to know I've been watching a dark, disturbing horror movie this week. <laughs> That's unusual. Well, slap my ass and call me Shirley. Well, Shirley. (laughs) (laughs) Damn you, lockdown. It's very hard to slap an ass from two metres away. I've bought my stick and everything. It's not often you get the invitation either. (laughs) No. (laughs) Andy, can you do me a favour? You could just go into the next room. (laughs) (laughs) He's not moving. He doesn't dare, that's why. I have respect, also fear. <laughs> <laughs> I've actually got a good one this week, and one that I think that you will all like. Oh, that's a nice change. Yes. As opposed to just nodding politely in the full knowledge we're never going to see this thing. Mm-hmm. Well, I think Hazel's already told me she's not going to watch this in a million years. But I'm going to try and convince her and the rest of you that this is genuinely a really good film. It's called Mandy, and it stars Nicolas Cage. <laughs> <laughs> So my recommendation this week is His House, which is a new horror film which debuted on Netflix a couple of weeks ago. So the stars are Wunmi Masaku, who is better known as Ruby in Lovecraft Country. So I think she filmed this before Lovecraft Country came out. And um, an English actor called Sophie Divisu, 
and they play a couple of uh, asylum seekers who have fleed war trans Sudan. They've come across in a boat in some quite harrowing scenes. And at the start of the film, they are in an asylum centre in Britain, and they have been told that they have been given a house, which they're obviously delighted about. Now, as asylum seekers, they are not allowed to work. They are not allowed to leave the house. Um, they are given a certain amount of money to spend. And they are told that if they break any of these rules, not only will they lose the house, but they face deportation back to Sudan. So they are moved into this quite dilapidated, very, very run-down house, no electric, etc., etc., but they can't believe that they've got this entire house just for the two of them. But very quickly, things start to go wrong, both within the area that they're in. They find it slightly difficult to integrate. There's things that asylum seekers, I think, unfortunately suffer in real life in terms of racism towards them and difficulties with money and so on. But also it appears that the house itself may be haunted. I'm going to tread carefully here because I don't want to spoil it, but not all of the family made it across from Sudan and some other things were left behind. And gradually throughout the night, what appear to be ghosts appear in the walls. They hear strange noises. There's some proper real jumpy scares in there and some really scary imagery. But they can't leave the house because if they leave the house, then you know, they may very well be, be, be deported. So you've got these two parallel storylines going on of the very real difficulties that asylum seekers face in Britain and also a really, really, really good, scary haunted house movie. And the two come together brilliantly at the end. I think it's very fair to say that the haunted house ghost elements of it work as a metaphor as well for what's happening to these characters what you've done and what's happened to you the ghosts follow you essentially and do you fight the ghosts or are the ghosts a part of who you are and you need to live with them it's brilliantly done it's really really good it's very very low budget there's a role in there from matt smith who we all know as doctor who and whilst he's very good in the role that role screams a little bit of we've got matt smith for five days please can we have some financing and there is a few areas where the low budget shows through in terms of, of some of the effects. But it's an amazing film. I absolutely loved it. It's not preachy. It gets that balance really, really well of never letting what the film's really about, which is the asylum seeker experience and so on, overwhelm and become preachy. It's still a really good, scary horror movie all the way through. You never feel like you've been lectured to in any way. I think people who are going to watch it because it's a horror movie are also going to come away with like a newfound understanding of what these people are going through. I know you really like horror movies that are this sort of stealth way of covering other subjects and science fiction as well. It's sometimes been a way of commenting on our current life through a different lens. The idea of horror as political and social commentary, I think, works really, really well. Going back to things like Night of the Living Dead and, and so on. This is a really, really good example of that. It sounds really good. It sounds really powerful. It sounds properly scary. But, but because of that last one, I don't think I'll ever watch it. it. It sounds like it's too genuinely scary for me to be able to cope with. How are you with jump scares? I don't like them. Okay. <laughs> um, 
It's not particularly bloody or gory. It's a 15. Don't let me put you off by saying it's scary. Mm -hmm. Get over that. It's such a good film. The only thing I don't like about horror movies is just unnecessary and awful violence. Is there any of that? There's no unpleasant kind of Eli Roth torture porn kind of stuff. None of that's in there whatsoever. It's kind of quite old-fashioned as a horror movie. If you've seen The Babadook Mm -hmm. and you were fine with that, then you would be fine with this. You recommended The Babadook previously, didn't you, John? Yeah, and therefore I didn't watch it. (laughs) 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 But you know what? There's like 10% of me tempted to watch this. And the other 90% saying, fuck no. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, the 10% of me is tempted by the fact that it's a commentary for wider and more mm-hmm. important things as well. So I think, Andy, you're intrigued by it as well. So maybe, um, you know, we'll watch it together. Me kind of, you know, from the stairs, ready to run up in case. But, you know, we, we, we might do that together. Yeah, I'm normally not a horror guy. However, a few weeks ago, before the most recent lockdown started, I did see uh, an outstanding horror film at the cinema. So I'm going to try and give more horrors a chance. The only thing I'm a bit worried about is the jump scares because I really don't like them and they also tend to annoy me a bit because they get me and I Mm -hmm. don't want to be scared and I feel um, upset that I'm not a big macho man. Uh, But sometimes (laughs) they feel a bit cheap but I would like to give this a try Mm -hmm. and if if Hazel's around as well um, then that'd be good. Uh, We can watch it together. She can protect you. Yes, well... (laughs) Yes. And, and what was the outstanding horror film that you watched before lockdown? I expect at some point we'll do a 2020 wrap up and we'll talk about our favourite films. And uh, Saint Maud is going to come in above Parasite for me. It was outstanding, Ooh. unbelievably fantastic. It's been a good year for horror. Yeah, there have been lots yes. of good horror films this year. So how many jump boo were there? How many jump boos? <laughs> um... <laughs> Can we start calling them those? Because that makes them feel less scary. <laughs> Nine and a half words out of ten. <laughs> You're back on the porn noises now, aren't you? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds really good. Thank you. I genuinely would like to see that. Well, it's on, it's on Netflix, so you have minimal excuses not to. We all enjoy a bit of mayhem and destruction for entertainment. Oh, but yes. after a year like this, it's occasionally good to have something gentler and nicer. My particular ray of sunshine in the darkness is Ted Lasso, which is currently showing on Apple+. Plus. Mm. After a bitter divorce, the ex-wife gets ownership of AFC Richmond, the struggling football club that was her husband's pride and joy. She's determined to run it into the ground just to spite him, so she brings in Ted Lasso, an American football coach played by Jason Sudeikis, who knows nothing at all about soccer and initially struggles to be taken seriously by the team and its fans. It originated as a series of promos on NBC to explain the rules of the Premier League to a US audience. But that character has been used and expanded into a series by Bill Lawrence, who's probably best known for Cougar Town, Spin City and, of course, Scrubs. I didn't really expect to like this much, as I'm not really into sports except snowboarding and maybe a bit of motorsports. But don't let the sports angle put you off if you're not. What makes it work is a huge sense of optimism and a feeling if you want a good thing badly enough and trust in people to not let you down, then good things will happen. This all sounds pretty sappy, and it is, but somehow the whole thing just wins you over. Jamie Tart, the young superstar striker more concerned with his image than his performance on the pitch, and Roy Kent, the older and wiser team captain struggling to come to terms with no longer being the star player, 
and a host of similarly problem-laden characters all overcome their differences, stop being selfish, and start to pull together as a team. And the key to all this is Ted's indomitable optimism and belief in people, which seems to somehow infect everyone around him. Other than Ted, Judo Temple and Anthony Head from Buffy, who plays the ex-husband, I recognised a few jobbing British comedy actors, none of which I particularly rated in things before, but again, somehow in this, it all works to bring out the best in them. The series is airing on Apple Plus and has been a big hit there. A second series was announced within a week of launch and a third was ordered after two months. Mm. Mm-hmm. So I recommend it as a, an anti-lockdown vaccine. <laughs> you really should give it a go. Has anyone else tried it? I haven't yet, but Apple TV has been added to PlayStations this week. Mm-hmm. So now we can actually watch something on a decent sized screen. Uh, this could be the first thing we try it sounds really good, and I'm all for a bit of optimism. Is it better than Mike Bassett, England manager? <laughs> no, I haven't seen that, but I can guarantee yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. And how does it compare to things like Scrubs and Spin City? Is it a similar kind of humour? I don't think I would have guessed that it was him behind it. Mm-hmm. There's just a certain something, a warmness that it has. Uh, there's still an Englishness as well that runs through it. I was slightly unsure after one episode, but by two I was hooked. I keep forgetting that Apple TV Plus exists, so thank you for reminding me of that. <laughs> um, I'm pleased to know that Anthony Head, uh, Giles out of Buffy, is working because he's phenomenal, and that makes me curious. He's also in Yonderland, I should say, on Ooh. the Ghosts team point. He does turn up in that as well. How splendid. Side note over. Tangent done. I had seen something about this before and uh, had kind of just dismissed it out of hand because I don't like football and I had made the assumption that it would largely rely on the differences between America and England, like the pronunciation of oregano and (laughs) basil and things like that, uh, which is lazy of me. Um, But I I think I might give this a go. Thank you. Did you know that Anthony Head is named after three different body parts, um, but he doesn't have the record? He's, He's Tony Head. Does anyone know who the record is with four body parts? Is it Hannah Knees and Bumps Daisy? Nope. <laughs> uh, Tony Hancock. Mm. Could you put one of those laughs in, Peter? You use your <laughs> laughter machine, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how is Jason Sudeikis in the lead role? Well, he's not very well at the moment. He's just split up from Olivia Wilde, which would be no. crushing. Uh, yeah. Oh, Why? it would be, wouldn't it? Yeah. Cat lady. So what oh. you said is Olivia Wilde single? Yep. That's what you heard. Go for it, John. <laughs> <laughs> oh, he's, he's left the room. He's, he's on his way. <laughs> Just looking forward to, at some point in about a week's time, Louise just coming up and just clipping me around the head as we hit this part of the podcast. <laughs> Deservedly so too. But you're not single, John. <laughs> Sometimes she just hits me and I'm like, why don't you know? There are so many reasons it could be. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But Olivia Wilde, she's on my list, like I would. <laughs> but Because I like her intellectuality. She's very clever. I like that she looks like a cat. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Not that I find cats attractive. You're a secret furry. That's why Pete was banned from Newcastle Cat and Dog Shelter. <laughs> Do you have any cats that look like Olivia Wilde? I want to adopt one. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I've got, a d- <laughs> I've got a dog that looks like Gillian Anderson. Okay, <laughs> that'll 
do. <laughs> I only asked a question about acting. Uh, yeah. Do you have a rabbit that looks like Myla Kunis, please? <laughs> <laughs> hey, the, 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 there's a there's an audience for that. It's niche, but you know. <laughs> anyway, how how is his acting? Yes, uh, going back to Dan's question. Normally, he's better than the things he's in in a lot of cases, unfortunately. But it's good to see that he's got Olivia a... Wilde being one of them. <laughs> <laughs> so, Peter, how many soccer cleats out of ten? I would give it. Um... Oh, nine and a half knobbly bits. Do you mean studs? <laughs> I do. <laughs> Look at you with your sport knowledge. And that brings us to the end of another episode of Nerdfest. Thank you so, so much for listening. We will be back in two weeks' time with some more buffs and bluffs. You can check us out on social media. We're at Nerdfest UK on Twitter and Facebook. And as always, John has an incredibly special reward for people who leave us a kind review on uh, wherever they listen to their podcast. Today, it is what, John? Yes, sir. If you send us a review, I will send you an unsolicited picture of myself nude, painted yellow with a Ned Flanders moustache stuck on. <laughs> really? <laughs> There's something to look forward to. <laughs> we actually have a listener who has requested me popping out her birthday cake. That's true. <laughs> yeah. Crazy fool. Combine the two and do it yellow. I'll paint myself yellow and pop out of <laughs> her birthday cake. Singing the West Wing tune. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, until next time, you've been listening to a man who is willing to believe in Bigfoot, a man who ain't afraid of no ghost. <laughs> A man who is regretting asking John to make sex noises. A man who's going to dress up in a monkey costume and hide behind Daniel to give him false hope. <laughs> and a woman who will find a Hamilton reference in anything. We'll see you in two weeks' time. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Uh, John, I know I'm going to regret asking this, but can you give us a porn noise? Ooh. <laughs> ah. <laughs> mm. <laughs> ooh, ooh, ooh. That was Marge, clearly. Those are all Nicolas Cage noises. <laughs> Does anyone else care to volunteer? Nope. <laughs> Could you give us an example of what you're after, Peter? I'm always tempted to, at the moment of orgasm, go, hoo-ha, like um, Pete Al Pacino. <laughs> hoo-ha! Is that a pirate having sex? <laughs> Have you seen the pirate sex movie? Here we go. It's rated R. <laughs> oh, get off. <laughs> Do you need any more porn noises, Peter, or can we move on? <laughs> Somewhere beneath the sea. Oh, no, that's a porn noise. Terrible. There's another one for you. (laughs) In the words of the Gracie Films Lady, shh.